The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya, how's it going? (laughs) Hey, Ben. Listeners right now are hearing us talk about the next episode of the Cinematography Podcast. Yes, yes. I'm very excited as well, uh, keeping my voice slightly down because my my podcasting studio, as it were, comes with uh, equipped with a baby on the other side of that house. That's right. So so, uh, so if we're being a little little quiet, not not too quiet, but hopefully a little quiet because we don't want to wake the baby. I'm going to get loud and animated now. Oh, okay, do it. Yeah, you can. <laughs> Stomp my feet. You can rock Madden back to sleep. Ooh. All right. So, so Ben, uh, I got have a quick update before we uh, dive into things. Yeah, uh, I, I have one too. Uh, you first. Okay. So last week I talked about uh, filmmaker mode, that this whole initiative by the UHD Alliance, which is made up of a bunch of different uh, electronics manufacturers. Very exciting stuff. Screen screen manufacturers. Yes. Yeah, so when you buy a TV set in the future, you'll have this button that says filmmaker mode or a menu setting, and basically what it'll do is it'll allow when you have content coming into your TV that it's going to put it into the right picture mode, which mostly means turning off all that smooth scanning, smooth scaling, smooth but stuff. But I would assume it would also come with like metadata that is like, you know, basically a lookup table or something that, that the filmmaker baked into the end product. And there's no way for me to physically watch the movie in a way not intended by the filmmaker. That's if not, I set it in no. filmmaker mode, that is what filmmaker mode is sold to me. No, as. no it's it's um, it's a little bit more vague than that. But is really, the, the number one thing that they're going to be doing is turning off the smooth scaling, smooth scanning that unless that is the intention, unless you are, uh, you know, watching a, a Peter Jackson or an Ang yeah. Lee movie or I something that's like, supposed to have. I feel that, like if then, the filmmaker wanted smooth scan on, then, 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 then filmmaker mode should activate it. That is what some oh, of those oh, movies will. will do. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That's oh, okay. what that's what will happen. So, so I can see Gemini Man in the way that it was intended. If that's how, if it was shot at sixty frames per second or forty eight frames per second that, or something if like I'm that. I'm not mistaken. I think it was shot at like one hundred and twenty frames a second well, or something. That, if that is what it was, then that is like the, the the experience that you will receive. It's going to give you the filmmaker intention. Well, that's cool. I mean, and, honestly, I would just be happy if there was a button on the remote that said turn off smooth scan. Like the, if I could just turn it off with, without having to like dig into a menu ever. Yeah, I had said last time that actually Sony had signed on to this. Turns out Sony did not. They're like, oh. they're a noticeable absence from oh. uh, from this. But Panasonic. Why, why, why the absence? Do they have their own version of this that they're working on, or did they just pro smooth scan? Uh, I, I, I it's speculation on my part. I don't have an answer for that. I don't know know why that would be. But uh, rest well, assured, we invite Sony to come on the podcast and explain themselves. <laughs> yes, I. I, I don't think we'll get that phone call, but they will get plenty of time should they should they pick up the phone. All right. So diving into uh, oh, real quick, though, yeah. I have an update of my own, which yeah. was uh, my short end a few weeks ago. As you recall, was causality, which is this. It, it's a screenplay sequencing program. Hmm. The more I've I have uh, dove, dived, dove, dived, dove. the more I have worked in it. <laughs> um yeah. Uh, <laughs> you dove in. So literally what I did, anyone can do. I downloaded kind of the free version. There's a free version on HollywoodCameraWork.com that you can you can download and kind of dick around with it. Here in my podcasting studio at home, you will see uh, next to you a cork board with a bunch of index cards uh, stuck onto it. And I've it's never a, seen such a thing. It's no, a, no it, I'm kidding. It looks exactly <laughs> like every, you know, screenplay script sort of thing you ever, the yeah, formative stage with three by five, exactly. four by six, multicolor. 
Yeah. Well, in this case, they're all just white. But yes, correct. So it's a screenplay that I've been kind of kicking around that is a, a very dark comedy idea that I've been uh, working on for a couple of years. And like a lot of screenplays, it's like it ends up being the last priority, unfortunately for me. So like regular work comes in front of it and dealing with babies and all that other stuff. So I decided to kind of take this thing off of mothballs. It, it's not years. I, I probably laid that out like five months ago. And it feels uh, like years. And it does. And so I, I brought it into causality. And I, I think that there's some really interesting things about causality. I'm hesitant to say it's going to like replace the corkboard and index cards for most people, but it, it intends to do that. Mm. The idea of causality is basically to allow you to lay out ideas and move them around. And even like, like it, this happens to me all the time. I don't know if this happens to real screenwriters, but it happens to me all the time where like I have an idea for a scene and I just want to like write seriously a third of a page of dialogue before, before I forget it. Mm. And it gives you a way to kind of record that and save that stuff and then use it or not use it. So it's sort of as like an Avid or a Adobe Premiere or a, a, God forbid, a Final Cut Pro X for writing. So y y you basically build beats, you build what they call snippets, which are sort of like pieces of scenes. I've never heard that terminology before. They probably just made it up for the software. Um, but it's, uh, relatively intuitive like like the learning curve hasn't been too steep there's uh it's got pretty good tutorials laying out how to use it on their website and so you know i'm not i'm not endorsing it necessarily yet and i suspect that when i get ready to actually write it in as a screenplay i might export whatever is in here and bring it into fade in because i think fade in is the best screenwriting software i've ever used but uh, no i mean i i would say as a follow-up uh, since it was something that I said I was going to mess around with. In fact, I think the act of seeing it on the podcast kind of made me feel more pressure to mess around with it. And and in fact, our, our mutual friend Zubi Mohammed uh, reached out to me and asked me how far I'd gotten in it. And I really, ha I mean, I'd done a little bit of stuff, but I hadn't done very much at that time. You didn't want to come off like a poser. So you figured you'd better get into this and actually put your time where your mouth was yeah. and figure this out. Yeah, because there, there are software packages like, and I'm not, I'm not denigrating this software package, but it's something that maybe people who listen to our podcast have heard of. There's a software called Frameforge 3D Studio Pro. And it is a previs software and it's optically accurate and you, you've used it. I have used it. And for a while I was like, oh, I can use this to previs a whole movie. The problem is for me, this isn't for everyone. This is my problem is that, you know, building a set and putting in actors and putting in lights and all that stuff. It takes so much friggin' time that by the time I get there and it's I mean, like they've made tools that make it easy to move the camera around and blah, blah, blah. But it's like. I, I need something that is that is a rougher, quicker, dirtier tool, which is, again, what brought me to uh, Shot Designer, also from Hollywood Camera Work. Um, but Shot Designer just enables you to make like quick and dirty overheads that, will, you know, will take you, you know, 10 minutes to build and you can kind of figure out all your blocking and your camera positions and all that stuff. And it doesn't need to be optically perfect and it doesn't need to be all the other things that something like Frameforge is because Frameforge is literally like you're using sort of like video game level graphics to build your sets and your characters and props and stuff. And man, oh man, can you get in the weeds with that stuff? And I sort of feel like with pre-production stuff, I want to be out of the weeds. And so I do wonder a little bit with causality if you're intentionally getting yourself into kind of those weeds or not. The, the only like real gripe gripe that I have with it is I wish the fonts were bigger because, um, 
when even when you zoom all the way in on something like the beats you, you know i kind of have to squint to read them a little bit I, I i wanted to feel more like index cards i'm not saying like make fake graphic stickies or something but like i want it to feel a little bit more like messy <laughs> do you ever use those sort of uh tools that are built into your mac to zoom in your screen and things like that uh, yeah, a little bit, but I mean, like, you know, I, I when I'm within a software, I kind of just tend to play by this. I mean, you can zoom in on, on the individual beats and stuff like that in causality. I just, uh, I don't know. I, I, I think anyone who's got a screenplay idea that they're kicking around, that isn't like a burning job that they're working on right now, you download causality. And in fact, you know, and it's free to mess around with it. And it's not that expensive if, if you want to license it to, to use it to do everything with, but like download it. Kick, it, kick its tires a little bit. Let us know what you think. Free. Turns out, though, uh, you know, if you've got a screenplay idea. No, really, it's just you and I. No one else has screenplay ideas right now. No, but it's like we're it's, the only two. That, that That's it. So, so we're really talking to ourselves right now. That's well. No, I'm, I, glad, I, I'm glad we're recording it. <laughs> anyway. Hey, Ben. So thank you for the update on causality. There's the update on the UHD alliance. But we should also probably uh, move into sort of a close focus. I think I mentioned I just got back from CES. There was a segment of the Consumer Electronics Show that was all about digital Hollywood, and it was essentially a conference on mm-hmm. all of these sort of latest technologies and things for Hollywood. But I went really to listen to the uh, industry leaders talk about podcasting and where podcasting oh, is cool. going in, into the future. And oh, it, do tell. It was really refreshing uh, because the, here it was the creme de la creme. These are big people, these uh, people who Wait, run. Neither one of us were on this panel. <laughs> well, these are people who. Um, podcasting is not their side hustle this is their this is their full thing and it yeah. was like they had, they had the ceo of wondery and they had oh, cool. national public media and they had all of these other you know services and people and uh, agents and things that that is what they're doing they're living and breathing the podcasting thing every day and i can tell you that everyone had little uh, ideas of where the industry was going there wasn't necessarily a lot of consensus except for this is the year that advertising becomes like a big deal for podcasting oh. they actually thought that there, the a, a formal uh, analysis came out that said that advertising revenue for podcasting would reach $1 billion by 2021. And everyone on the panel said, mm, it's going to happen this year. So there will be a, this will become a billion dollar industry as far as advertising goes, which some people have been waiting for, which is very interesting. You and I have both been waiting for our billions. Uh, <laughs> no kidding. Uh, one of the other things that they talked about is that, uh, um, Podcasting pretty much has the type of advertising right now that is what uh, generally considered for all other media, including television and radio, the lowest bottom of the barrel style of advertising. This is as a um, this is a direct response, sort of like, hey, use this promo code to get X like uh, and uh, buy a mattress with this promo code or sign up for Squarespace or whatever it might be with a promo. Can I admit that I both signed up for Squarespace (laughs) And, and bought a mattress using promo codes that I got on podcasts. I, I, True story. I, I don't, and, and I don't, I'm not surprised. A lot of people seem to do this, but uh, back when we're talking about radio or television, that sort of like direct action, direct response uh, media was always considered like the lowest bottom of the barrel. But what's interesting is that there are now people advertising, including Fortune 100 companies that are saying, no, we just want to be associated with this content. We want to have our brand be associated with this brand. And so that's sort of like a big milestone. And like these, some of the, the big, 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 you know, multi-million download podcasts out there of which we are not there yet, even though this is this has been our best year. Uh, I will tell you that or a multi-thousand download podcast. <laughs> 
Yes, yes. Ten, tens and tens of thousands every month. So, And, and we love you all individually. No, it, it, I would hug fine. every one of you. Yeah, I just, will hug every one of you. Just you wait, Ben. You will get that chance. So, all right. Uh, anyway. When it finally came time for the people on these panels, and I went to two of these panels, each one was a, was at least an hour long, there was a lot of humility and people admitting, we don't really know what's going to happen, but it sure is going to be harder for people to advertise on television when television is all streaming services, especially when like Netflix is so powerful. So if you were, let's say... Um, a brand that had an association with uh, Shonda Rhimes Mm -hmm. and like you were used to having your brand associated with Shonda Rhimes programmings like Scandal and things like that. If she moves all of her work over to Netflix, which doesn't have that type of advertising, how are they going to get keep their association? Yeah. How are or they Disney going to Plus or Apple TV or, or any of these other services? So really Hulu is the only one who well crackle also does. Well, they say that podcasting is going to become more and more important for these type of sponsors who want to have close associations with a entertainment entity. And we'll probably see more entertainment sort of podcasts uh, coming along. But also I, what, I might have news about one of those yes, entertainment I, related podcasts. I, I think you might. Yeah. But uh, but what I was going to say is that it's quite interesting that now 51 percent of America has listen to a podcast. It used to be uh, significantly less, but they say that uh, 2020, uh, right now here at 2020, 51% of America has heard a podcast, which is huge. So now it's a, a majority. Yeah. Although it's under 30% that listens regularly. But still, if you think about 30%, that's a that's hundred million Americans. It's a buttload of people. And there is now some different sort of podcast tracking services out there, which can give you some metrics. But I, I can tell you right now that uh, it, it became very clear to me that if you are just getting into podcasting now, it's probably never going to be harder. It's going to be that much harder that like we, we have a real advantage that we've been doing this for seven years. If you were just starting today, it's going to be much, much harder for you to build your audience and get people to listen to you. And the reason that there are so many podcasts out there is because there's a lot of abandoned podcasts. And sometimes people come back, but they basically consider your podcast abandoned now if you have not produced content within one month. So really, I know. I don't, well, I don't follow that because there are plenty of podcasts, like uh, the Dana Gould Hour. I, I never miss an episode, and he probably does three episodes a year. I would know. Ne- it's, it's never abandoned. It's abandoned when the person making it says, I'm not doing it anymore. Well, there's a whole bunch of new, new different metric engines and things that are coming in and tracking. Also, and so also is- lots of podcasts, uh, like the professional journalism podcast, like The Dream is one I've been listening to. And, like, they did a season. And then they were dark for like nine months and now they have a new season. So that's I, that's different. But it is abandoned during that nine months. It's not constantly producing content. So. Well, I, I OK, not, I know that we're about cinematography and not about podcasts, but I must say I, I feel like I don't want to impose a YouTube like expectation on podcasting because I feel like podcasting is, a, is a, and I'm not saying YouTube isn't about quality content, but like if you're a YouTuber, it's not. If you're like Sorry. a if you're like a 15 year old YouTuber and you're vlogging all the time and you're building an audience and you're get, you know or you're on Instagram or one of those kinds of things, yes, you have to be constantly cranking out new content. But I think if you're making like if you're if you're serial, which is like the that is the gold standard of all podcasts. But, you know, it's yes, 100 percent. I don't mean to cut you off here, but it's the same thing, too, than with seasons with television. Exactly. That, yeah. Television has hiatus. Television. Exactly. Has downtime, you, so. you you wouldn't say that, uh, you know, Stranger Things was uh, abandoned right now. No, uh, but it's I'll, just but not, I'll tell you the, it, rules. the new season isn't made yet. 
the rules for podcasting are definitely changing the way it's being discussed. Uh, there's a lot of conversation about attribution and how uh, advertising and how sharing of audio is going to be more and more of a thing. But uh, I will tell you that the debate is not over and the executives and the people who are involved in this, there was a lot of humility. There was a lot of people going like, we don't know. We don't know what's good. We don't know what's going to happen. Well, which This is precisely what I love about podcasting is that there kind of isn't a rule or a way it's, it's always done. You know, it doesn't have to be a certain length. It doesn't have to come out in a certain frequency. It doesn't have to be fiction or journalism or, you know, if four guys sitting around talking about sports, it can be any of those things. It can be all of those things. And it's a truly democratized medium in that anyone with a $5 liberated syndication account and anything that records audio can have a podcast. You know, the phenomenology of it is like what rises to the top and gets the most listeners. You know, it's great that stuff like Serial or whatever ends up being something that drives a lot of listeners. But I feel like it did it entirely organically. There's a new there's a couple of new services out there, too, that once you sign up with them, they make it extremely easy. So if you are like, oh, I, I, I'm yearning to have a podcast, I want to put this out there in the world and share everything. They make it they like give you free hosting. They give yeah. you free RSS. They give you all these things. But they also when you sign up, say that they also own the right to use all of your content. One hundred percent that they own your content. Yeah, I got to be careful so, about that. I so. mean, there's there were a lot of YouTube related companies. I think. That's exactly right. Like Maker, I think, uh, there, got into some hot water and uh, Machinima. Yeah. Machinima, yeah. Yeah. There, there was the several that it wasn't just the advertising. They actually then owned the rights to your channels. And so you would have like a 17 year old kid with a with a semi successful YouTube account suddenly signing away the rights to their actual likeness and name and identity because well, that was the intellectual property of I, I can't tell you for sure that it was Maker or Machinima or who it was or if I know Machinima one is, was one of the ones that did that well I, I certainly heard it but I'm not an expert in that so I can't say 100% which which was which or what I, was I have a friend who I went to film school with who is absolutely an expert in all that stuff and he would tell me well, stories Machinima is basically gone now so too crazy. so yeah it's like they got their studio got bought by by dc who's actually like you know the the comic book people so nice. they're right around the corner from us they're literally on the next block we should so, say hi I, i've been over there they're, they're wonderful people they actually brew their own beer and gave me some beer which was Whoa. i know you don't drink but it was awesome for me so awesome anyway so yeah, they, one of the reno one of the uh beers they gave me was they did their own label and art and everything they called it reno as fuck and i gotta say that uh reno as fuck was delicious Interesting. I would have assumed that they would have named them after DC characters. No, they just kind of named like, it whatever they wanted. Like, to. Give me the Martian Manhunter. They, they did have something. They had Torok the Dinosaur Hunter, That's which fine. is, yeah, yeah. that was good. But, uh, anyway, so, so Ilya, who do we have on the show today? All right, so we're doing something fun. It's the first time we've ever done this. We are bringing something back from one year ago. This is the Lulu Wong interview. Awesome. Lulu Wong, of course, who did uh, The Farewell, was starring Aquafina, who just picked up a Golden Globe, which is yeah. incredible. Uh, that, and, that movie's getting serious, serious plaudits. As it should. And um, a lot of people are really talking about it as uh, a real contender in the upcoming Oscar race, which the nominations haven't come out yet, but uh, I know they're, they're only days away. So here we are. Uh, listen to our interview from last year's Sundance Film Festival with Lulu Wong. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. I'm Alana Cody with the Cinematography Podcast, and I'm sitting down with Lulu Wong to talk to her about her new movie, The Farewell. So Lulu, if you could tell us a little bit about your movie, The Farewell. Yeah, the film is about a Chinese-American woman 
who goes back to China to say goodbye to her grandmother, essentially, because her grandmother has been diagnosed with stage four lung cancer, and the doctor's given her three months to live. The only thing is that her grandmother doesn't know that she has this illness, and the family has decided not to tell her. And so they're all returning to China under the ruse of a wedding for Billy, the main character, for her cousin from Japan. And so they're using this wedding as a way to say goodbye to Night Night, Grandma, without making her suspicious. The beginning of this story, The Farewell, I know that you first had it on This American Life. I personally am a huge fan and I remember hearing it when it was on. So tell me how, like, how that then got developed into a larger thing with visuals. Yeah, when the episode aired, I, I would say within like 48 hours, Chris Weitz tweeted at me, and then we had lunch a couple of days later, and Peter Seraf from Big Beach also emailed, and a number of other producers also reached out, and so I took a bunch of meetings, and ultimately knew that I wanted to work with people who were going to support my voice and allow me to tell the story the way I wanted to tell it, which meant also uh, keeping the authenticity of the casting and the language. And so both uh, Depth of Field and Big Beach are such uh, strong supporters of independent filmmakers and, and, you know, keeping things in the director's vision that that it was clear to me that I would work with them. And throughout the entire process, um, they were just nothing but supportive of making sure that, you know, I was able to do this film the way that I wanted to. Great. And so did you always want to be a filmmaker and be prior to doing This American Life? Oh, yes. Actually, I made my first feature in 2014. Mm-hmm. And it's called Posthumous. It stars Jack Houston and Britt Marling. We shot it in Berlin. It's out on Hulu right now still. Yeah, and so I've, I've always wanted to be a filmmaker, and this situation actually happened to me. My grandmother getting ill and everything happened while I was editing my first feature in Berlin. And my first feature was this like screwball romantic comedy because I love screwball setups and I love the comedy um, of like a screwball setup. And I, I started to realize, you know, there's a lot of screwball uh, situations in my real life and um, or at least that's the way I see them. Um, and so when this happened, I knew immediately that it should be a film, but I didn't want to compromise on my vision of how to make it. And that's why it took such a long time to find the right partners. Right. So how long did it take from like when you first had did the idea to the execution? The first time I had the idea was in 2013 and I just had written a short story about, about this uh, experience. And I, I did that because there were so many specific moments that felt that just I, I I knew I had to get on paper before I forgot them, and because I was told time and time again that this story would be very difficult to get financed, and who was the market for it, and all of this stuff, I just never thought that I would ever get to make it as a film. So then, in it, I made a short film after my first feature to just 
you know, make something a little bit darker and go back to trying to say, okay, what is it? What what else do I want to say? You know, what is it? What is my voice as a filmmaker? What are the types of stories that I want to tell? And that short is called Touch, and it played at a bunch of film festivals. And a producer from This American Life came, and we, you know, I think uh, recorded the story in 2016. So it was probably less than th- three years. But then the movie got set up that same year at the end of 2016. Oh, okay, great. That's good. So what was the difference from translating it as like a radio story to turning it into like a visual story? Because the visuals are very, really, it's shot very well and it looks like you worked really closely with your DP so if you want to talk about that yeah my cinematographer Ana Franquesa Solano uh, she's from Barcelona but she's lived in New York for many many years we worked very closely and I, I had such a specific vision of how I wanted to shoot the film I knew that I wanted the shots to be quite composed I knew that there's a performative element to the situation with the family right they're performing their emotions And so I wanted to have a staginess to the cinematography. And I searched for a really long time for the right DP. And Anna was non-union and she kind of came across about like two weeks before I had to leave for China for prep. Mm-hmm. We still didn't have a DP, and um, I had interviewed all these other people, and then I saw her work, and just immediately knew that she would be the right person. And I just begged and begged and begged her to to come, and we had to work out union stuff and all of this. But yeah, we had a really close collaboration, you know, because again, uh, there's a, 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 a naturalism in the characters and the dynamics of the family, but I wanted the cinematography, the framing, the composition to be a bit more stylized. And the juxtaposition of that, I think, is what allowed me to explore humor in mm-hmm. the story that was not broad comedy. It wasn't a comedy where I had to say to the actor hey this is supposed to be funny so be funny like I allow the actors to just be real Mm -hmm. and be in the moment and they themselves don't know that they're in a comedy which is often the case I think in real life like when we're in a very dramatic situation we just feel like it's a melodrama and so the camera serves as this sort of objective camera that is able to look at these characters and look at the situation and present the humor Great. And so when you were selecting the locations, um, you were, it looked like you were pretty specific to kind of make them seem humorous. Like I'm thinking in the film, there's a scene where they're doing the wedding photography. So how difficult was it to shoot in China and how hard was it to find your specific locations for the mood that you were trying to invoke? Yeah, I would say that the locations were you know, challenging, but not because of China. Actually, China made the scouting easy, the inspiration, I would say, for locations very easy because those wedding studios exist all over China. That's like a very big industry is wedding photography. And there's an absurdity to that, the -the over-the-topness of the wedding industry, definitely in America too, but in China, you know, it's a much bigger thing uh, because you have so much family and it, you have to show like the demonstration of it again the performative nature of these very personal you know emotions or things is a big part of the chinese culture and so all of the locations were inspired by real locations if not the real locations themselves and so there's a mixture of real locations like 
for example, the cemetery is the cemetery where my grandfather's actually buried. The gravestone where we shot is my grandfather's gravestone with his picture on it. And then with uh, Nine Eyes Apartment, we originally had thought about potentially shooting in Nine Eyes' real apartment, but it became this whole big drama of like, okay, this lady has stage four lung cancer, doesn't know, doesn't know about the premise of the movie, and now you're gonna like move her out of her house uh, to live in like a, a hotel or you know a condo and, and like bring a crew. Like it just got to be too much. And the only reason we even considered it was because she kept insisting. And and my DP, we went, went over there to make dumplings, and she's like, this is the best apartment we've ever seen out of all the places we scouted. It's got all these, like, layers. And uh, and so I was like, oh, God, oh, my God. And so my grandma insisted, and Anna was like, well, I love it, but I don't want to, you know, cross any boundaries. And so I ultimately had to say, you know what, like, this is a great inspiration. Let's try to find something similar, which was very, very difficult for that location specifically because apartments in that region of China are very, very small. And her apartment, Nai Nai's apartment, is a little bit bigger than the normal apartment because she was in the communist army. And so the housing they they provided for her is slightly better than, you know, middle class. It's also from a particular era. And so it meant we had to find that to to get the right feeling. So that took quite some time. Mm -hmm. And how did Aquafina get involved? Yeah, so as we were casting, uh, I had done a bunch of auditions and one of the producers at Big Beach had heard about Aquafina and said, what about Aquafina? And I was like, didn't she do that video, My Vag? Uh, like, and also, isn't she Korean? And so I had known her as an influencer, as like, you know, somebody who had um, these YouTube videos. And so it wasn't my first instinct to just cast her and I looked up some of the comedy that work that she'd done and um, I, I'll admit I was skeptical and uh, then I started to research a little more and found out that she was half Chinese and she and I met up for a coffee and she told me that she was raised by her Chinese grandmother on her father's side so the story was very personal to her she'd read the script and loved it and just said that she had such a deep personal connection to it and really, really wanted to do it. So then she sent in an audition tape. And when I watched the audition tape, I was blown away. And I it actually made me cry. And I knew right then that she was the one. And I, I knew that I could work with her on the language stuff, but her the rawness of her emotions, she had such access to it. And I could just feel that she had that access that even without professional you know, acting training or without having done any dramatic acting in the past, just knowing and, and being able to feel that she had that access to those emotions because of her own relationship with her grandmother, made her such a valuable asset to the project. Great. Now, so do you, do you do you find it a little bit more freeing maybe to make it more of a fictionalized version of your real life story or was it just different? You know, I think that the fictionalized version was actually more challenging than This American Life. Mm-hmm. I think there's a quote that's like the only difference between fact and fiction is that fiction has to be credible. And when working on This American Life, we had fact checkers and I had this 
team of journalists who were helping to guide me and do, doing the research and doing the interviews. And so it was a, a very um, smooth process. And with making a film, there's so many decisions to make in, in, in terms of like, how do I make this feel authentic and believable? And how far can I go? Like, okay, we're gonna use actors, but you know, what kind of actors? And are they gonna feel real? And uh, in terms of everybody comes from different places in the world and um, are their accents gonna feel real? Like Diana Lin is not actually Chinese American, she's uh, Chinese Australian. And so is that gonna influence that? And I wanted the movie to be as authentic as possible in both languages, not even because I'm like targeting the Chinese audience and I, or any that thing like that, but I just think for the overall texture of the film to try to stay as true as possible. So, you know, and then I cast my little Nai Nai. Yeah, you're, yeah, you're talking about that. My yeah. great aunt to mm -hmm. play herself. And that was an idea I had from the beginning because I just love her. She's so charming. And also it was important for me to include her in the process because she was the one who instigated the lie. She's the one who had to shoulder the burden all of these years of taking care of uh, her sister, my grandmother, because we all live abroad. She was the one who got the news alone in the doctor's office and then had to decide, do I tell my sister? How do I tell the family? You know, and um, I wanted to honor her perspective in the story, and so I, I just thought, you know, if I if I have her in the movie somehow, it'll help maintain the authenticity. And so initially, I thought, well, what if she plays Nai Nai, her sister? And so I did put her on tape, and quickly realized like she's not a very good quote unquote actor in that way, particularly when it's of her sister, because then she just starts laughing, and she's like, oh, how does she do it? And she would just giggle and you know almost like try to do an imitation mm -hmm. but uh so i so then kind of put aside the idea of casting her for a long time but we were nearing the start of production i still hadn't found either nai nai or little nai nai and we were like scouring the parks every morning and just like looking for non-actors <laughs> and it's like if we're gonna cast a non-actor let me just talk to little nai nai again and see and so this time I said, what, what if we just had her play herself? Like, what would that look like? And we spent three hours in a room and the casting, uh, one of our casting assistants was there with a camera, but I said, let's not even film this. Let me just talk, let's just talk. So I just really talked to her and got her in that place where she was like putting herself back in that moment of hearing, getting that devastating news. And then, you know, what, what did it feel like to walk down that hallway? Right. And then tell, Know, knowing that you have to lie to your sister. And so, you know, we were in an apartment and just I had her walk from one end of the room to the other and back and back and back. And she walked and walked and walked, remembering, remembering, remembering. And then I was like, great, there, now. And then we did the scene. And it was just like, everybody was blown away. The producers were there. We did film that and I sent that to them and they were just like, oh my God. And yeah, she was really good. Yeah. I would not have known that until you said something about it that that was she was not an actor and that she was just really your aunt. Yeah. So. Yeah. My favorite scene in the movie was um, the group family dinner at Nai Nai's house after everyone finds out. So I was I was curious though because that was kind of screwball, kind of you know sad and funny at the same time. But so what was that a part of what really happened for to you in your personal story? 
you know, I, it's hard for me to even remember now, like what specifically moments in the movie were totally real and what were, you know, I think I knew that I, uh, food is a big part. And so every scene revolves around a dinner table or a breakfast table or whatever. So I was just trying to say, okay, well, what are all these, they're, they're obviously going to eat a lot together, but each of these eating scenes has to mean something different. And, and what is the significance of each of these meals as opposed to you know people just talking and so so much of the movie is about the things that are not spoken and so we shot that scene in a way also where everybody's at the table but everybody's isolated Mm -hmm. and you know so you know we have these over the shoulders and so like everyone's alone in the frame and everyone you you see the feelings and they're saying one thing but feeling something else and yeah I, I I love that scene as well like I was very excited to start editing it because I think crafting those moments of awkwardness and like being just like a little bit too long mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> yeah that's what really made it work definitely yeah um I guess my final question really would be now that your nine eyes lived like it was six years now past mm-hmm. her prognosis mm-hmm. how does that make you feel do you think you've had sort of a change of heart about maybe that was a wise decision that she doesn't know that she has cancer mm-hmm. yeah it's hard not to believe that that had played a role like of the family not telling her played a role in her living much longer than the doctor diagnosed but of course I've talked to other people whose family did the same thing and their you know loved one didn't live much longer and so we don't have a time machine we can't go back and say if we made a different choice how would that go I, I I don't know I think it's a very complicated thing where I I don't know if that had an effect, but I certainly don't want to test it. Yeah. You know, and that's why it's hard for me to know whether or not she should see the film. On one hand, if we buy this idea that joy is a kind of medicine, then um, there's nothing that I would love more than for her to see this film and see how much we've honored her. I think that would bring her a lot of joy. But at the same time, what if she sees it in real and just just devastated by the fact that we've lied to her all these years or and then what if something does happen when where she's no longer with us and will I feel the guilt that somehow maybe like her finding out through me and through this film is what caused it even though she's 86 you know and so there's the rational part of me that's like no it's not related of course not but if if somebody woke up every day and believed that jumping up and down on their left foot while tapping their nose for five minutes is good luck and they do it and then there's some positive result then are you 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 want to maintain that right because you know the the result sort of validated your belief yeah and I think that's kind of how everybody is and everyone in my family sort of has different ideas too like oh the thing that I did helped her live longer like my my uncle is like oh yeah those Japanese probiotics we gotta keep buying them for her and we're like you know they're so expensive and he's like but what if we don't buy them for her and then she dies and you know becomes sort of superstitious yeah exactly (laughs) all right well i guess that's our time so lulu's where can people find you on social media or or find out more about the movie i am on social media as thumbalulu and for right now at least that's the best place to sort of get the progress of the film and uh, I'm sure that you know as things develop towards the end of Sundance uh, there will be more information great thank you so much thank you for having me
All right, so that was Lulu Wong. Lulu Wong, go kick ass in the Oscars and then come back to our show. That would be great. Uh, anyway, time to pay the bills. All right, let's do it. Let's uh, let's thank our, our sponsor, our fine sponsor. Here we talk a lot about advertising at the head of the show and how things are working out uh, in sort of the industry. Our sponsor, Aperture, makes fantastic LED lighting products. They also do some really sort of cool community events. And for the sponsored spot this week, uh, I want to talk about... I, I, they had a three-hour-long. Actually, it was a five-hour-long event yesterday. Uh, it wasn't all lecture, but it's two like a, hours it's like long. A shift at the Waffle House. It, it is. It is close for sure. It was a two-hour-long lecture by uh, by Ted of Aperture and this other guy named Tim from uh, Quasar Science. They're both. Uh, personal friends of mine and customers of my shop and it was great to see them so they went and did this event in Burbank where they decided to break down and demystify discontinuous spectrum lighting and it's like wow that's a mouthful and I know people are tuning out right now but they're basically talking about RGB LEDs which is red green and blue LED lighting technology. So what makes it discontinuous? Discontinuous means there is not every wavelength of light the way you get from traditional incandescent bulbs or from Mm -hmm. the sun. If you were to use a fancy spectrometer and take uh, readings, they would show you how much blue, how much red, how much yellow, how much green, how much magenta, how much cyan, how much all of these different colors are in the light. And when you have all those colors, cameras give you a very good response of of what that is. Your eyes can be fooled, but cameras... um, less so. So what happens is, is that if you've got an RGB light out there and the way that Aperture and Quasar Science basically got together to do this sort of thing, it was very uh, jovial, um, I'm going to say friendly. There was other lighting companies there too, but uh, Aperture, I, w- I would definitely say is was sort of the ringleader of this because uh, Ted, who does the, Ted, who is, uh, I think now president of Aperture America, he uh, also has a YouTube channel called Indie Mogul, which uh, I guess I'm going to be on here shortly too. Awesome. So I know that, that that's interesting but after, uh, I, after i talked shit about youtubers <laughs> well all right okay, moving on so he, yeah. here's the thing so uh ted's got this cool channel where he uh brought in uh tim from uh quasar and they went and explained how rgb can be problematic and they did this example with skittles and everyone in that room basically got the same thing they got a package of skittles and they turned on a very very red light red only light where they removed no other part of the spectrum just red and then said hey take these skittles and try to organize them so you can identify which are yellow which are green which are blue which are purple which are whatever and of course when the regular lights come back up you see that you couldn't identify these the these skittles because of the light uh my my only criticism for uh tim and ted is that the lecture portion which is about two hours long was a long way to go to get to the final results which are totally worth it and there was a lot of people who were in the room who I could hear them and feel them sort of shifting around uncomfortably because mm-hmm. we're talking about uh, color science we're talking about stuff that may not seem as and as practical to uh, the average every go everyday person who's like why do I need to know all this I just need to know how to make pretty pictures well but yeah but they, they did a good job and of step by step breaking it down and explaining uh, the spectral fingerprint, which is essentially what happens when when photons interact with colored objects and then eventually they, they reach your eye. So, so. I, I, I'm sorry if I'm being dense here. So are they saying like using an RGB LED, but that is tuned to look like white light, you're you're going to not see the full spectrum? You're not going to see the full spectrum, but you're going to have a much better image if you're working with a high quality white LED or an RGB light that is tuned to white that actually does have some white spectrum uh, dedicated 
LEDs inside of it so that you have some yellows, some reds, some blues, some as, all these other as, things. As, as compared to uh, an RGB which LED is, that is literally just red, green, and blue yes, lights. Which, which is that the, they, they really threw the um, sort of cheap uh, LED ribbons and strips you might get off of like a Amazon or something like that as yeah. examples of that sort of thing. And using just those pure colors, trying to make white is uh, generally a fool's errand. You're not going to not going to do very very well with that especially cameras who are used to seeing all the different but like an rgb light that's made for filmmaking by a company i'm not going to name names a a reputable company uh, yeah a reputable company that makes stuff you know most of them are pretty good yeah you're you'll you would you be able to sort the skittles better in in that incident yes if you were using some sort of flavor of uh full spectrum red but that's not what most people were doing there was just a a mono spectrum red so we're just getting really a very small section of wavelengths and so when you get that you don't get to see it now they had all the benefits of a powerpoint presentation and the ability to kind of go through step by step this by step to break it down yeah yeah. but but rather than me spend we've, we've already spent a very long time here on this aperture spot which is essentially to say that they really kick ass as far as like community development and they rounded up hundreds of people to come to this event to listen to a lecture about color science which let me tell you i did not think they could do i think most people who probably would turn out for this sort of thing they wanted to hear something about creative lighting not necessarily about like you know swallowing the their medicine they had to like you know learn that's this interesting because i would love love to see a, a presentation about color science i feel like it's one of those things that I don't know enough about. And I know that like when we get into the weeds about color, things like color science or optics, when you get into like the real technical stuff about optics, it's harder to understand because, you know, math is involved and it's not as easy to understand as like, I turn on the light and it looks like this. I don't know why I'm I, 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 I making became, a Southern you, character. Yeah. Well, I'm from let's, Florida. Whoa. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, so. I guess that is the South. Yeah. yeah. So, anyway, uh, here, here's the thing, Ben. Um, you want to you want to talk about stuff. I am happy to. We can while away the hours talking about optics and LEDs and all and all that stuff. But I don't think that's really what you want. I think what most people want is sort of the high level conversation and the ability to understand to hear a little tidbit that they can take into their lives. They want the producer soundbite sort of version of it. Like they want to be able to speak intelligently about it. But I don't think they really want to get into all the minutia. And most people don't want to know why they don't want to know. You know how the hot dogs are made. They don't want to know what makes the engine turn. I guess they I don't want to necessarily watch the production process of making individual LEDs and understand what chemicals they're mixing with arsenic to make the R and the G and the B. Uh, it's it's more like I kind of want to understand the why of the pretty pictures sure. a little bit, and I don't think that you can truly get it if you don't know something about the science behind it, the color science. But yeah. Here's the thing. If you want to go deeper, uh, Aperture put this up on the web. So you can, in fact, we'll, we'll include a link in the show notes so you can watch uh, essentially the same sort of conversation online uh, that happens in a much more shorter format, not the two hour version, although I did see people live streaming at least portions of it last night. So there is probably some on Instagram and that sort of thing, too. So. Excellent. Well, I, I'm sorry to to drag the Aperture ad into a short end, but I find it interesting. It's fascinating. <laughs> it, it, really, Aperture just deserves some props and uh, you can buy all the Aperture products over at hot red cameras but aperture deserves props for being an incredible community organizer and to round up hundreds of people on a thursday night in burbank to attend what is a five hour was a five hour total seminar from the time they showed up to the time that they, they were going home again a shift at the waffle house yeah that 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 is impressive and uh it's it's a great service that they were doing for for the community all right 
And now, short ends. All right, so Ben, I think it's time for Obsession of the Week. What's your your short end? Uh, My short end kind of starts with the idea of movie jail, which we've probably talked about. Oh, sure we have. Which is... uh, But let's refresh it for people who are just tuning in. This is their first cinematography podcast. So movie jail is, uh, let's say you're a filmmaker and then you went and you spent $120 million making uh, an adaptation of Cats. And then it tanked and was universally reviled. This is all for instance, because nobody would ever do anything. No one would do anything that insane. But most people can escape movie jail if they already have their next deal booked before that, that, mo- that movie comes well, out. Well, but like if you're not a, as established a director as say the kind of person who could get cats made, you then go to movie jail. And it happens to a lot of filmmakers. But in particular, I wanted to talk about a filmmaker whose work I find very interesting, uh, Richard Stanley, who made uh, in the late 80s, he made a horror movie called Hardware. Uh, then I he, saw that in the theater. I did too. Uh, and I really liked it. It's a sci-fi horror it's a it's it's basically I would call it the first cyberpunk film. Oh, okay. And uh, and I watched it. It was on Netflix. I watched it not too long ago, like maybe three four years ago. I don't believe it's on Netflix anymore. But I was like, oh, it, like does it I'm exactly it hold shot. up? Does it hold up exactly? Mm. No. It but it feels like a product of its time, and it's really good. Then he made a film called Dust Devil, uh, which is like a story about a magic cowboy, and is really awesome. And uh, and I loved that movie. And then he was hired to make a movie, uh, an adaptation of The Island of Dr. Moreau. Oh, really? Which some people might know is the subject of a documentary called Lost Soul. Because that movie was taken away from him and given to John Frankenheimer. That's right. And uh, and it sucks. <laughs> and it was taken away from him way into pre-production. Oh, man. And so th- there's a document. I didn't ever realize he was the one who, who it was taken away from. So if you ever get a chance, and I believe it's on either Netflix or Amazon or something, check out Lost Soul. Because it's about the making of that movie and how, how way off the rails that movie went with... Marlon Brando and 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 all, all the craziness involved, and he was the original director of it. He was fired, and I and I think if you watch it, basically he was fired because he didn't know how to be a big Hollywood director because he basically made two kind of modest budget indie films, but people saw like this enormous potential in this director. So that was like 1995. Has he made a movie since? His next movie since that is about to come out. Ooh. And all right. And uh, because my wife, Alicia, is awesome, she told me about this, uh, that literally (laughs) next week uh, at the Vista Theater in L.A., there is a screening of his adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft's A Color Out of Space starring Nicolas Cage. Whoa. Uh, That's his that's his next movie. That's his. It's already made. It was uh, shot by a guy named uh, Steve uh, Annis, A-N-N-I-S, looks as, as the title would imply, color plays a huge part in this. I'm, I'm, I've read the short story, and at one point, my friend Graham Skipper had adapted it into a stage play, and I was supposed to direct it, and then the theater didn't end up. The theater that was going to do it didn't end up. So you have a personal it. connection to this material. Too. I, I mean, well, I've in that I've read it a lot, yeah. um, but uh, I really sparked the idea, and I think that it's interesting that um, that Richard Stanley is kind of being his career as a director is being taken off of mothballs after all these years and and I, I do think if you watch the movie Lost Soul um, you feel deeply sorry for him like the movie he was making possibly was bound to suck as well it's hard to tell but I I almost look at it and go they should have just let him make his movie because it's not like what they did ended up any better than what he was going to do it was Marlon Brando attached to his movie as well correct Marlon Brando and Val Kilmer 
I had I'd heard this story and and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'd heard this whole story about how Marlon Brando was so into this idea that even though he never really wanted to do or did press for other movies, he wanted to do a fake infomercial to come visit the Isle of Dr. Moreau. He wanted to go do this whole thing. Like he had these, all these plans and supposedly, cause I, I know there was the, the whole regime change that happened that when the new regime came in, they didn't want to have anything to do with Marlon Brando's idea of like tourism for, for I think by the time the movie came out, they realized that it was just not good. That to me, one of the more interesting tidbits that you get from that documentary is they fire Richard Stanley. He then literally goes and lives in the woods. They're like shooting in the middle of Africa, somewhere in the horn of Africa. He goes and lives in the woods and the extras on that movie basically were kind of living in their own little encampment and he went and befriended them and they knew him obviously because he'd been the director and so he ended up as an extra as an extra in his own movie after he was fired from directing it and there are like scenes where he's the extra right next to Val Kilmer oh my god it's, All right, I have to go back and watch Isle of Dr. Moreau now just because this is... Well, and, and I should see the documentary, yeah, the, too. You can just watch the documentary. You don't need to, you don't need to watch the movie. But, but uh, you know, director jail is kind of an interesting thing because it's like how... Movie hard, jail. Movie jails. Well, I've heard it referred to both ways. Mm. But it's like how hard is it to get to get to the point where you can direct a, a movie for, for anyone, frankly, but, you know, for a studio... And then a lot of these people, like, they just, and, and we're not talking about, like, necessarily uh, Kevin Spacey, uh, you know, Harvey Weinstein kind of a situation. It's usually just someone makes a movie that underperforms or whatever, and then, like... You don't hear from them for a long yeah, time. Suddenly, we just don't get movies from that from that person, whoever they are. And, um, you know, and you'll even hear stories, like, I don't, luckily, I don't think it happened, but when A Wrinkle in Time was made a couple of years ago and, and then underperformed, they're like, well, can we give black women, you know, giant tentpole movies to direct? And it's like, uh, really? White dudes have been crashing and burning for a whole century. <laughs> no kidding. And, and just because one movie underperformed and her other movies were really good. Like, are, are you going to write off an entire gender and race? But you would people think Hollywood is a super liberal place, but those conversations actually happen. But ordinarily, it's kind of more tailored to like somebody somebody I think is perceived to be out of step with the audience or just wastes a lot of money or how know. could we let this happen? How did it happen? How, you know, how yeah. does this? Yeah. And I mean, sometimes they're just a dick, but I can, I yeah, can list off a lot of, true. a lot of douchey filmmakers who just get to keep making movies over and over again. And I, I'm not going to, cause you know, I'd like to yeah, work. Cause, cause, but, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, so movie jail, Richard Stanley, check out Lost Soul if you get a chance. I'm totally watching that. And uh, when a color, I, I, I can report back maybe on how a color out of space was, uh, directed by someone who hadn't directed a movie in over 25 years. Please, please report back. I want to, I want to hear about this. And then I'll put it in causality and I'll, and I'll, uh, I'll report back on both of those things. So, uh, Ilya, what is your pet obsession of the week? <sighs> this, oh, no. uh, for, for Christmas oh, man, this year, you, you just de- deflated visibly. I'm like, oh, I no. deflated. No, you kind of like, okay, here it comes. <laughs> Great. I would, I would, Strap in rock. Uh, I got probably the best deal on a single DVD I ever got during Christmas. I got, uh, I, I, I bought myself a present, uh, because you're, I'm, you're talking about a DVD, like a digital versatile disc. That's exactly right. All right. So I'd wanted to see a studio. There's a bunch of studio Ghibli movies I've never seen. Like, like I, like I was like you going into sort of a media coma after having a child when that happened for me was, uh, 
2008. Yeah. So I, I'd missed a lot of like stuff that had, I had missed some stuff that came out before that because I was just, you know, nose to the grindstone trying to, you know, trying to, trying to work and, you know, do Make other things. Yeah, so, uh, all that other stuff. So Studio Ghibli, which is oh, sort of like kiddie fair sort of thing too, although it's, it's not exactly for kids. There's plenty of sort of dark and surreal and bizarre content out there. Uh, I remember liking it years ago when I was in film school and then kind of never seeing it again. I picked up a disc that is, or I picked up a DVD collection that is essentially comes in one single uh, like DVD case, but there's like five discs and 17 movies inside. And I am now going through and watching these movies and holy crap, do I have such a new appreciation for them? What are some of the movies? uh, Spirited Away, uh, Princess Mononoke, Mm -hmm. uh, all kinds of stuff just like that. So Miyazaki. Miyazaki films. Yeah, 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 exactly. But I had, I didn't know that. I didn't know the name of his studio. Oh, okay. Studio Ghibli, Miyazaki, same. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's, that's the place. They, they occasionally do some other stuff too, but really, uh, they have dozens and dozens of these movies. And now I know they're coming to a streaming service. So people will be able to to watch that. Like the first time on streaming, I am getting uh, advertisements on my Instagram saying to watch this, but I, I don't have to because for $15 or whatever it was, I have now this collection of of movies and holy crap what a joy and a delight it is to go back and to watch these things after uh, one not either not having seen them or uh, decades and decades can, can I admit something terrible hmm. I've seen none of them I need I it's it's a giant gaping hole in my in my film viewing it, it, it is and you know I, I can understand there's some people who they say I am not an animation person or I'm not specifically an anime person but uh, the storytelling in these movies is uh, deep and no, surreal I've, I've and only fun. Heard, I've only heard the best stuff ever about Miyazaki's work and uh, you know uh, send all your hate mail to uh, <laughs> to me uh, listeners for uh, for not being familiar enough with Miyazaki but you know, the truth is you can't see everything. It, and these days, especially true. It's impossible to see everything. So you have to pick and choose. But boy, the I, Studio I mean, Ghibli like, is, is worthy. It's, it's worthy of, to of me choice. sitting at home watching Ancient Aliens. <laughs> uh, Ancient Aliens is a client of Hot Rod Cameras. And we, we really appreciate their, their business. And uh, I've never missed an episode. I, I know you're a huge fan. It is a you're, I, I hear you've called it a guilty pleasure, but you're not. It's the number one. It's the number one show on that network now. Whatever network it is that's showing it history. History H two. Yeah, they. That's the number one program. So it's not just you. It's like everybody who watches that channel. That's their number one too. So. Well, nothing against the rest of the, what's on that network, but it ain't ancient aliens. <laughs> oh, you're like it ain't ancient aliens. So that's that's, I, that's all I'll say. All right. Well, hey, uh, Ben, I think we've reached the the end of our program. Let's thank some people. Oh, well, first, we'd like to thank Alana Cody for doing everything she does. Our our output last year was phenomenal, and hopefully it will be even slightly more this year. And you got to hear some of her because, of course, she did that interview with Lulu Wong. That's awesome. Well, and and, you and I both know that was like, you know, her her gig for a long time was uh, producing, uh, you know, documentary and reality kind of TV. We might get around here a little bit more. So maybe there's uh, maybe there's some more stuff. with that yeah maybe maybe she'll do a host wrap i i'm not against that at all i mean uh, let's let's break it up got enough white guys on on, on podcasts go on <laughs> all right let's thank uh kays alatrachi kays alatrachi who uh flip a coin he's probably not listening probably not listening but you never know and uh and i i happen to know that kays's uh dog uh had an issue the other day and i and i wish zelda speedy recovery wow yeah i i, I didn't know that and yes zelda feel better all right, let's thank uh, our intrepid editor, Ben Katz. Ben, as always, I'm I'm so sorry. <laughs> so sorry. Great. <laughs> I'm so sorry about what I did to you, Ben. 
Hey, uh, if you're listening to the show and uh, you like what we are doing, please drop us an email, subscribe, uh, send us a note on Instagram. We got a bunch Twitter. of new followers, Twitter, any of, yeah. any of those things. Talk back to us. Uh, we're thinking about doing a promo with people who are professionals in this this industry. Then uh, well, there might be a way for us to do sort of a trade type of thing, too. So hit us up if you uh, if you like what we're doing and you want to be involved in some way, maybe we can promote what you're doing. And uh, actually, uh, to that, in the Twitter vein, I tweeted out that I finally saw 1917, uh, shot by Roger Deakins, and, you know, that I I believe it is a master class in cinematography, that movie. And uh, Justin Rowland, I'm I'm hoping I pronounced your name correctly, Justin Rowland said, when is Deakins coming on the podcast? When indeed, Justin? When indeed? Uh, Someday. Some, some, so, someday if that, if that should happen, we will have a, we'll have a, a wonderful story to tell my, all, all about my, my terror about having Roger Deakins on the podcast is that I feel like I want him on five episodes of the podcast because there's so much you, that, that will never happen. You, you don't even remember that it's, you'll, you'll, you'll be like, holy crap, Roger Deakins shot the Shawshank Redemption. We could easily talk. Roger Deakins shot Barton Fink. We can easily talk about Hudsucker Proxy for 45 minutes. That would be interesting. It's like we get Roger Deakins on and we literally only talk about Hudsucker Proxy, which is a movie that everyone should watch no matter what. Anyway, it's an it's an amazing film. And I don't care about the people who like it got some some pan reviews and and it's ridiculous. It's a great movie. Um, The Jennifer Jason Lee is in it. Uh, It's it's you know what the Coen brothers do. They set up your expectations for what they do, and then they subvert them with their next movie. So what happened was they made Miller's Crossing, then they made another period piece in Barton Fink and won the Palme d'Or at Cannes. Their next film was Hudsucker Proxy, and it's a wild Howard Hawks 1940s fast-talking comedy. And I think that nobody knew what box the Coen brothers were in, and I kind of got used to them. They just did that. Then they would do Fargo. So they're doing like you know, kind of like a modern noir. And then they do the big Lebowski. They do it every time they, they do whatever you think they do. They turn it upside down. I think they might just be having fun. I think that they are the luckiest sons of bitches alive. (laughs) And, and they're also two of the best filmmakers who ever lived. Uh, and, and period, I have nothing I can, I can add to, or, or I can only wholeheartedly agree with that statement. And, and honestly, the first time Roger Deakins ever came on my radar, it was because of Barton Fink Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, because they'd worked with Barry Sonnenfeld up until that point. It's true. And then Roger Deakins shot, has shot most of their movies since, you know, the Chivo shot one of them. I mean, they've had other DPs. But Deacons is their main guy. Incredible work. I mean, inc- inc- incredible work from, from an incredible yeah. range of work. If you were to just do the Cohen filmography with Roger Deacons, that would be incredible. You wouldn't even have to talk about friggin' Blade Runner or you know any any of the other many amazing beautiful films that that the man has shot. And, you know, again, you know, you forget that he made Shawshank Redemption. He, I, he hasn't forgotten. I'm we, sure, I'm we, sure have, we have not forgotten. But anyway, I feel like having Deacons on there is, you know, sort of like a, a guide through all of the best films that have been made probably starting in 1992. He holds a, a really interesting place sort of in the industry right now, too, because when you talk about cinematography, his name is almost synonymous and you don't uh, necessarily, even though there are tons of incredible cinematographers some we've been uh fortunate to have on the show you don't necessarily get the immediate sort of name recognition the way no he's he's the modern day conrad hall in my opinion yeah i think that's that's high praise but 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 true 
So that about wraps us up here, and that that's our new segment is talking about deacons. Talking about deacons at the end of the show. Deacons so, talking. Yeah, I, I think that we will have to make this now the, uh, we'll have to do this every time until until he, until he comes on the show. Yeah, that's, uh, that, that's a sure way we'll probably never get him on the show. Yeah, but yeah. he'll have to listen to the show first. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, uh, all right, so that does it for this time, and uh, join us next week on the Cinematography Podcast. Next week for sure. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.